As it turns out, you get a flying craft that looks like a dome with three bumps on the bottom. The three bumps are coils which carry three phases of Tesla's rotating three-phase power. Welcome back. I'm here again with Dr. John Brandenburg. Dr. Brandenburg, welcome, my friend. Oh, a pleasure and honor to be here talking to you, Sean. Okay. So today we're going to talk about anti-gravitic propulsion. Yes. So since I was 11 years old, I was assigned the problem of continuing the unified field theory effort of Einstein by my father as he was painting a fence. (laughs) (laughs) He was painting a fence and I was talking to him and was sort of like, son, go off and think about this. Let me finish painting this fence. And so I love my pop. He was a great guy. He was a medical doctor. But anyway, Einstein spent the last 30 years of his life trying to unify the two long-range forces of nature, electricity and magnetism, what you call electromagnetism, and gravity. Now, there are four fundamental forces in nature that they know of right now. Two of them are short range. They hold like the nucleus together or the, actually the charged particles, uh, the, the particles in the nucleus, like the neutron. They're held together, but the nucleus is held together. It's a bunch of positive charges all stuck together. They repel each other, but there's a force that they call nuclear glue, the strong force. They call it the strong force because it's stronger than electromagnetism. Electromagnetism is our standard yardstick. Then there's a force also called the weak force. It's weaker than electromagnetism, and it holds the neutron together. The, 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 the three fundamental uh, particles that make up everything we have around here is protons, electrons, and neutrons. And if the neutron, if it's outside the nucleus, is actually unstable. After 10 minutes, it pops like a firecracker. You could say the neutron is radioactive. And when it breaks up, it breaks up into a little ghost particle called a neutrino. But what flies out of of the neutron is hydrogen, a proton and an electron. So protons and electrons attract each other. You'd think they'd want to stay together. But the weak force tends to push them apart. Mm-hmm. And they call it the weak force because it's weaker than electromagnetism. It takes a long time, but quantum mechanics finally allows it to push these particles apart, even though they would like to stick together. So the proton and the electron stick together in the neutron, but the weak force pushes them apart. And what's left of the weak force comes out is the neutrino. So That's the strong and the weak force. They're very short range. They're called nuclear glue because they're like sticky, like two things sticking together. But you pull them apart, they don't see each other anymore. But when they're close together, they stick together. Okay, now the strong force and weak force hold the nucleus, and that's nuclear physics. What runs the universe on a large scale is electromagnetism and gravity. The stars are held together by gravity. They emit all this light. That's electromagnetism. 
And anyone who's tried to do laundry on a cold winter's day in Minnesota, you know that when you open the dryer, everything is charged up with static electricity. In fact, in New Mexico in the winter, where it's really dry in the winter, I walked through the house, just locking up the house at night, you know, before I all went to sleep. And I remember always checking the front door, wiggling the doorknob to make sure it was locked. And it would be this tremendous spark of static electricity because I walked across the carpet into my front room. It's got all the static electricity on, on me. So then I touch the doorknob and it lights up the entire living room, even though the lights are out. So I always remember that's that's electricity. Electricity is like lightning bolt, and you can pick up pieces of paper with it. Now, magnetism is what makes the compass needle work, and you can pick up a paper clip with a magnet, but you can't pick up paper with a magnet. To pick up paper, you need static electricity. You need electric field. So those are the two distinct fields. Now, you can actually buy these things. They're called radiometers. They look like a light bulb. And they have a little turbine inside. You can shine a flashlight on them and they'll start to spin. And they're spinning because of electromagnetism. The photons in the light beam carry radiation pressure. They carry energy and momentum. That's what makes that turbine spin inside that glass sphere. So there you have magnetic force, pick up paper clips, can't pick up paper, but then you pick up paper with static electricity. There's electricity, magnetism, then there's electromagnetism. That's the third force of electromagnetism, the radiation pressure. And it runs according to a mathematical combination of electric and magnetic fields called a pointing vector. It's named after a guy. It points in the direction, by the way, that light propagates. So it's so strange that this guy came up. His name was Pointing. It's spelled with P-O-Y-N-T-I-N-G. And it's a British name, Pointing. But it actually points in the direction of radiation pressure. Out in mm -hmm. space, particles of dust see the light of the sun, and the light of the sun pushes on them, and it actually pushes them out of the solar system. You could actually put up a giant laser and shine it on a big spacecraft, with big solar sails and fly to Alpha Centauri using radiation pressure that runs mm -hmm. on the pointing vector. Okay, so I am studying plasma physics. My father had assigned me to unify the gravity and electromagnetism. That was his assignment. Well, well there's one more force. You didn't talk gravity yet. Oh, I'm sorry, gravity. Everybody knows what gravity is. Now, if you have two things floating in space, two rocks, mass mass of one, mass of two, mass one, mass two, they're separated by a distance d. They'll attract each other with a force that goes as the mass times of one times the mass of the other divided by the distance between them squared, inverse square law, so it gets weaker at distance, but then it gets stronger when you get closer. And then that's all multiplied by a big constant discovered by Newton, Isaac Newton, called Big G, the Newton gravitation constant. It's just written as a capital G. 
It's the most important number in the universe, according to many people. Because big G determines how much gravity force is generated between masses floating around in the vacuum of space. Everything that makes galaxies, makes our solar system, makes stars, it's held together by gravity. Gravity runs on big G. So, big G is very important. So, in the meantime, the other thing about gravity is it affects everything the same. Electric fields and magnetic fields, they work on charge. They'll actually affect different charges in an opposite way because they are oppositely charged. They give opposite effects. This is why you put an electric field on a bunch of charges. The positive charges will go one way. The negative charges go the different way. In magnetism, the opposite effect occurs where the charges will move clockwise in a magnetic field if they're positive and orbit counterclockwise around lines of force if they're negative. So gravity affects everything the same. It's just attractive. We have no negative gravity force. All the masses, which have no charge on them, attract each other. That's it. Now, another thing, funny thing about gravity is if you're getting accelerated by magnetism or electricity or electric forces, and you're riding along on the charged particle, doesn't matter how fast you go, you still see that electric and magnetic field if you had a little measuring device. However, gravity, if you're falling in free fall, the gravity disappears. You're weightless. You might as well not have any mass. Even though the gravity is working on the mass of your body, you have no mass when you're falling in free fall. You only feel the mass when you're standing like on the surface of the earth and you can't go anyplace. Mm -hmm. Then you can feel gravity. If you're falling with a bunch of stuff because everything is falling at the same rate you are, everything falls the same rate Gravity affects everything the same way. It's as if you're weightless. They told me gravity was an illusion. But I said, well, I fell off my roof one night because I was helping to put shingles on my roof. And yes, gravity is an illusion until you hit the ground. <laughs> <laughs> then it is no longer an illusion. I was fine. I actually jumped off the roof and uh, you know, landed as, as a young kid, young and tough. So anyway, gravity affects everything the same, but electric and magnetic fields affect everything differently. Except what's interesting, the electromagnetic force of the radiation pressure that runs on the pointing vector, which is if you cross an electric and magnetic field, you get the pointing vector pointing in the third direction. So you got X, direction, y direction, that's the electric magnetic field, and then the z direction, that's the pointing vector. It's, it's, it's the cross product of electromagnetism. It is, yes. Electric, the cross electric field and the magnetic field, right. It is the cross product. So, this is 
a marvelous puzzle. And Einstein just stared at this and just scratched his head for 30 years. Here's Albert Einstein. He's figured out relativity. He's figured out black holes, galaxies. The whole universe began with the Big Bang. That's all comes out of general relativity. Now he wants to take the other great mystery, electromagnetism, and unify it with gravity. Can't do it. He also helped start quantum mechanics, by the way. Einstein was a great physical thinker. He wasn't just a mathematician. He was a master at visualizing things. He called them Gedanken experiments, thought experiments. Mm -hmm. And he would sit there and daydream, basically, about things like gravity and everything and quantum mechanics and figured out all this stuff. And then he would publish and he helped everybody accept the ideas of quantum mechanics, even though he didn't like it himself. He didn't like the way quantum mechanics developed because it was all based on probabilities rather than certainties. He was a very nuts and bolts guy, basically. He said, God doesn't play dice with the universe, he says. <laughs> And he got in this big debate with Niels Bohr, you know, one of the inventors of quantum mechanics. They had this big debate in front of a whole bunch of scientists. And Einstein roared, God doesn't play dice with the universe, to which Bohr replied, quit telling God what to do. <laughs> now, as it turns out, the problem that Einstein faced is he didn't like quantum mechanics. So he tried to unify gravity and electromagnetism without using quantum mechanics. And as it turns out, I have discovered quantum mechanics is the key. If I had an imaginary conversation with old Al, I said, Al, it's true that God doesn't play dice with the universe, right? He says, yeah. <laughs> and I said, yes. But God does own the casino. <laughs> <laughs> where dice is played. So he tried for 30 years to unify gravity and electromagnetism. One thing that came along that was really interesting to him, and he kind of adopted it later in his own theory of trying to unify gravity and electromagnetism, is called Kaluza-Klein theory. Now, in those days, if you had a new strange idea, you could send it to Einstein. And if Einstein liked it, he would send it to a scientific journal with a note saying, I think this is a good idea. You should publish this idea. And that's what happened. This guy Kaluza, a German scientist, came up with this idea of a hidden fifth dimension. It's there, but it's not there. It's kind of mind-boggling. How can something be important if you can't actually see it? Well, molecules and atoms are there, and we know they're real, but we can't see them correctly. So the hidden dimension is like that. By the way, this is how I've wrapped my own head around this. Now, what Kaluza did and what Klein then later added quantum mechanics to this so that he came up with this is they found that if you started with just four dimensions, space, time, you know, X, Y, Z, and time, 
and you say you can have space-time that's curved, so you have an equation that says, I'm going to minimize the curvature. It's like you've got a rubber mat lying on the floor, and it's got wrinkles and bumps in it, and then you smooth it all out so it's nice and flat. So it's in a state of minimum energy. So space-time is like that. If you curve it, you actually create energy. So the idea is you minimize the energy. The universe runs economic. Yes, it runs with a big budget, but it keeps track down to the penny of what it does. It doesn't like wasting any money. So if you apply that principle of minimum energy to space-time, because gravity fields have energy in them, then you get Einstein's theory of relativity, general relativity, black holes, the Big Bang, everything comes out of just one mathematical principle. Mm -hmm. You define space-time, X, Y, Z, and time, and then you minimize its curvature, bingo. It's called the Hilbert Action Principle. You get out of this falls Einstein's equations for gravity. So this is really interesting. Einstein loved this idea. So he made it a set, the heart of his theory that gravity waves, everything like that, black holes, the Big Bang, was all due to the economics of running a universe at minimum energy. If you got a nice car, you don't go driving it all over the place to get down to the store. You try to drive the most direct route, right? The universe does mm -hmm. the same thing. If a crow wants to fly someplace, he flies in a straight line because that's the route of minimum energy for him. I mean, a crow's got to eat, right? So he's going from one place where he can eat to another place he can eat. He flies a straight line because that's the shortest path and he's got to flap his wings all that way. He's got to expend energy to get someplace. So he takes the path of minimum energy. The universe is like that. It takes the shortcuts wherever it can. Okay, so you do that with space-time, get a minimum energy state that gives you Einstein's theory of equations for gravity. Now, what Kaluza discovered, if you add a hidden fifth dimension, so there's X, Y, Z, and time, and then something else. But you make it so this other dimension is basically curled up and hidden. So nothing in our real world seems to depend on it. Then you do the minimum action principle. The shortest possible, as the crow flies, out of this falls Einstein's gravity equations. And the same equations falls out Maxwell's equations for electromagnetism. Out of the same theory, the mathematics is perfect. You get gravity, Einstein's, and the source of gravity is electromagnetism, electromagnetic energy. It all falls out, and the equations for electromagnetism, they fall out too. So light, magnetism, picking up paper clips, picking up pieces of paper with electric fields, it all comes out of one thing. Plus, and it's plus, it mixed with gravity. 
you get everything out of this by just adding this extra fifth dimension, which no one can see. But mathematically, it's there. It just doesn't affect anything at our scale. And the way I visualize it, it's like the size of an atom. You know, the hidden dimension is, and Klein, uh, the guy named Klein, worked out the hidden dimension part in detail because he was interested in quantum mechanics. So quantum mechanics runs at small scales. So you have this theory where you have now five dimensions instead of four. Well, this was very annoying to Einstein. He didn't like the idea of this hidden fifth dimension. He says, what's it doing there? <laughs> you know, it gives you electromagnetism. Yeah, but what else does it do? You know, mm-hmm. it's useless. It's like a fifth tire. It's like a fifth tire on a car. What do you need this fifth tire for? You know, and, and it's little. Imagine you got four tires on a car and then you've got a little uh, wheel from a roller skate sticking out the side of the car. He says, what the hell is this for? And they said, well, it makes the math all work. He said, okay, I'm going to say we should publish this. He, he wrote a note to the journal saying, okay, publish this shit. <laughs> but I don't understand it, and I don't like it, but the math looks really good. Now, the string theory people, by the way, brings us to subject of string theory. The string theory people said, well, if you add one hidden dimension, you know, this little skate wheel on the side of your car that doesn't actually touch the road and doesn't <laughs> doesn't have any power and you can't steer with it, what's it there for? Well, it's there to give you some math, turns out. Okay, the string theory people have now added 10 extra little wheels like that. Mm-hmm. Some of the wheels are within wheels. And you ask them, what is that? We don't even know what the little fifth wheel does. <laughs> it's like a hood ornament <laughs> on the car. I mean, what's it do besides being a hood ornament? And now you've added 10 more hood ornaments. What do they do? And they say it gives us good math because, you know, we do all this. We can pick what make stuff that looks like the weak field and the strong force and stuff. And it gives us the math. And that's their answer is it's mathematically beautiful. Then they try and make predictions that they test in these super collider things. Nothing. Nada. Nothing. And this has led a lot of people to claim that string theory has become a religious cult, not an area of physics. It's a bunch of mathematicians who just gotten so obsessed with their math, they don't care about the real world anymore. Or diversion by the government to prevent people from working on this anti-gravity problem outside of... Uh, Einstein himself. Einstein, of course, fled... Einstein was a sh- not only was a genius, he was also a smart guy. He sees Hitler take over in Germany. He tells his family and his secretary, who was also Jewish, he says, we're going to take a long trip to the United States. I've been invited there to come give lectures. 
He'd also been banking money in the United States. Mm -hmm. This guy was thinking ahead. He could see the handwriting on the wall. Not only did he see the handwriting on the wall, he read it real well. He got him and his family out of Germany. So he's in the United States. He starts working at the Institute for Advanced Study run by Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer is finally, you know, it's World War II has ended finally. Mm -hmm. And so Oppenheimer is put in charge of this think tank set up by this bunch of rich people on the East Coast called the Princeton Institute for Advanced Study. Here's Einstein working in an office. His boss is Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer and Einstein do not get along. They even sort of suggested that in the movie. They'd ask Oppenheimer about Einstein and his unified field theory. Mm -hmm. Oppenheimer says, ah, he doesn't know what he's doing. You know, he's an old guy, senile. That's what he'd say. <laughs> Here's Einstein down the hall, and Oppenheimer won't, you know, he says, yeah, we give him an office here and we let him work and give him paper, you know, but nah. He's a has-been. He's yesterday's news. What we're really interested in here is quantum mechanics, he says, and nuclear energy. And Einstein doesn't like quantum mechanics, therefore he's a nobody around here. <laughs> this is Oppenheimer. Now, Oppenheimer was about to have his own little troubles. But anyway, so Einstein is working on this unified field theory, and he notices that the government doesn't like his work. They said, well, you know, you were kind of a left-wing, associated with left-wing politics when you were over there in Germany before Hitler came to power, weren't you? And Einstein says, yeah, yeah, why? Why, why, why do you ask? And they said, well, we're looking for communists here. We we're just wondering, maybe you knew some communists or something. Anyway, so he actually said, after he'd been in this country for, you know, he arrived in this country like in 1942, before World War II started. He got out while the getting was good. One of his buddies, when Hitler came to power, who was also Jewish, killed himself and his son. His son was mentally handicapped. He took his son down to the park, shot his son through the head with a revolver, and then put the revolver to his own head. He was a good friend of Einstein's. That's how the despair swept through Europe when Hitler came to power in Germany. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so Einstein's in the United States, safe and warm, working on this unified field theory, and he's treated like an infernal old crank. You know, the old grandpa you keep in one end of the house and don't talk about him anymore. That's the way Oppenheimer treats him. Ah, it's not, it's not, it's, his ideas are nothing. He's a has-been. And Einstein, again, not just a genius, but a smart guy, he says, you know, I wonder sometimes. If people don't want me, 
investigating the connection between gravity and electromagnetism. I wonder, you know, the unspoken message is uh, Einstein. Now, why don't you work on something else? You know, work on something else. Find something else to work. The stock market. <laughs> you know, figure out a theory of the stock market. That would really bring some money in this place if you did that. So he says, you know, it's as if they don't want me working on unified field theory. So he even said that. So, yes, there is a theory. <laughs> One of these conspiracy theories. That the string theory was thrown as a bright, shiny object into the physics community and funded by the government. We spent like $30 billion on string theory. Produced nothing. Nothing. No results. Just a bunch of papers published. You ask these guys, well, what have you produced from this theory? He says, well, I have 30 refereed publications in scientific journals. That's what he'll say. One guy described string theory is a boil on the backside of physics. <laughs> Look, I'm an outsider, but it sounds like mental masturbation to me. Oh, I that term, I've heard that term used many times. I'm a practical physicist. I'm interested in solving real-world problems. Energy. We want to harness fusion. Give me the money, I'll do it. I can do it. Tell me to unify the fields. I've done it. And I've got the formulas and everything to show it. And finally, DARPA gave me a grant to study my gem theory. I came up with a theory called the gem gravity E&M theory. Actually, my preferred term is grandis et medianus, meaning the great and the middle. Think of the great scales of physics as the cosmic scale mm -hmm. and then the Planck scale, where the Planck turbulence occurs little black holes form and, and then evaporate constantly, making quantum uncertainty. Space-time becomes a foam at the Planck scale, and the size of the little bubbles of the foam, you can actually predict that. Everything like that is called the Planck length. The mass of the little black holes is called the Planck mass, and their charge is called the Planck charge. They actually are viewed as plus and minus particle and antiparticles that are charged, or at least that's my favorite model, so that everything is charged, fundamentally. So anyway, so Einstein says, you know, it's like people are telling me they don't want me to work on this, and there's no panache attached to this idea. Here I am. I'm Al Einstein. I'm working on this thing, and nobody will give me the time of day. You know, they give me an office. Yes. Do you think any of this is just like stupid human factors as opposed to any conspiracy, i.e. it just other oh. physicists were just dismissing it and, and something else was sexier like quantum mechanics, oh, so all the money oh, was funneling it, there? It, there's abundant evidence that that was the case, that people were mesmerized by the beauty of the mathematics 
the analogy I give is the cook was sent to the kitchen with a turkey and a bottle of cooking sherry. And rather than using the cooking sherry on the turkey, he got drunk on it. <laughs> they've gotten drunk on the cooking sherry, which is the math. Method. And they've forgotten about the turkey that is sitting there in the oven. So there's a certain amount of that very much present. You don't need to imagine a government conspiracy to just think that it was groupthink and herd mentality in physics. Mm -hmm. It was the fashionable thing to do in physics, and they give you grant money, and the government basically controls what gets worked on by what they give grants for. You want to look for life on Mars? Sure, they'll give you a grant. Just the unwritten message and the attached to it is just don't find any. <laughs> the string theory, if you have five dimensions, you can unify gravity and electromagnetism. And then they didn't want to stop there, though. They wanted a theory of everything. And if Frederick the Great said it best, master of war, said, he who tries to defend everything will end up defending nothing. Same goes in physics. He who tries to explain everything, he or she, will end up explaining nothing. You have to be able to focus. So, now, the gem theory that I developed is based on two postures. Let's imagine quantum mechanics allows you to have a bunch of plates and magnets that create an array of E cross B drifts, the pointing vectors. Mm -hmm. And this is what happens around any mass. Space-time kind of arranges itself quantum mechanically and makes all these pointing vectors that point towards the object. So that's gravity. That is gravity. And it accelerates all the charge part, everything fundamentally that we know of that is stable in the universe is a charged particle. All the nucleuses are charged positive, all the electrons are negative, and that goes down to finally hydrogen, you know, just protons and electrons. Okay, so everything in the universe is charged fundamentally, and it's all caught in this pointing vector field that's arranged by quantum mechanics. So that's the first posture, that that's what gravity fields are. The arrays of pointing vector affecting all these charged particles. The next postulate is that gravity and electromagnetism used to be unified. When the universe was first there, there was only one force, and there was only one particle, or particle-antiparticle pair. That's the Planck scale. So it was just vacuum with Planck turbulence in it. Then, a fifth dimension appeared. Bingo! And electromagnetism and gravity split apart from being one force to being two distinct forces. They split apart, and the Planck scale particles split apart, and one became heavy, heavier than the other, and the other became lighter, the electron and the proton. So, 
when you had this splitting apart of gravity and electromagnetism, what also happened was the splitting apart of protons and electrons out of the vacuum, plus and minus charges. Have the same charge, different masses though. They appeared. And that the appearance of this hidden dimension from the Planck scale that, that did all of this is correlated with the spreading apart of the mass ratio between the proton and the electron. So start out with one scale of size determined by gravity and electromagnetism. And it splits from the Planck scale, becomes big com compared to the Planck scale. It's huge. It's the size of like an electron or a nucleus roughly actually it's somewhat smaller but it's about roughly that size range and then at the same time the protons and electrons appear as separate particles and move apart in mass same charge but they move apart in mass and so the correlation between the strength of gravity and electromagnetism is correlated to the separation of masses of the proton and the electron. And the magic number that makes this all work is the number 42, as it turns out. And I'm not joking. I came up with the theory, and then I read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where the number 42 explains everything. It's the number, uh, 42 is the square root of the mass ratio between the proton and the electron it's actually 42.85 mm -hmm. uh, 03 and then you know it's a yeah. it goes on and on so that is the magic number that governs the universe because it is the number that separates logarithmically the logarithm of the if you have an electron and a proton the ratio of the gravity forces to the electric forces between. If you take the logarithm of that four of that ratio, it's the number 42. It's also the separation of masses between the electron and the proton. So that was my big magic formula. The idea that electromagnetism and gravity separated and so did the proton from the electron so you ended up in the Big Bang with this new fifth dimension caused this. The new fifth dimension appeared. So you went from just hard vacuum with just quantum mechanics at the Planck scale. Boom! You end up with a universe with electricity and electricity and magnetism as one force and gravity is another, two forces and two particles, electrons and protons. A universe made of hydrogen expanding, and it also has electric and magnetic fields. It has light and it has gravity. So that's the second posture, is that the appearance of the fifth dimension, which unifies gravity and electromagnetism, is correlated not only with the separate appearance of gravity and electromagnetism, but the separate appearance of protons and electrons, hydrogen. So that is the theory in a nutshell. Gravity is essentially electric and magnetic field microfields. 
all aligning. And that's the first postulate. And then, and you can show the math is right. And then you also show that the thing that allows you to have separate electric and magnetic fields from gravity is a hidden fifth dimension of Kaluza-Klein. And when that appears, and as they say, deploys from being a the size of the Planck scale to suddenly popping out like popcorn and becoming a hidden dimension, it's still hidden, but it's a lot bigger than the Planck scale, like 10 to the 20th times larger than the Planck scale. Mm -hmm. That has appeared. And so then that expansion, the appearance of the fifth dimension and its expansion to its size is correlated with the apparent difference in mass between the electron and the proton. Now, Einstein had actually been obsessed with this idea that the universe was basically hydrogen. The rest was details, he says. Don't make me worry about cheeseburgers and toll booths, taxes, all that stuff. What's really important in the universe is hydrogen, which is just two particles. He called it the two-particle paradigm. All we care about is where protons and electrons came from. The rest is details. And the universe, especially at the Big Bang, was 99.9% hydrogen. Mm -hmm. So it has had vacuum, according to present theory of the Big Bang, which is, of course, constantly being revised. You have started with hard vacuum at one moment, and bing, the next moment, you've got this expanding white-hot ball of hydrogen with electric and magnetic fields in it. So now you can take this formula. Now, if you pick the size of this mesoscale, which means in Latin, the middle scale, I mean, think of the cosmic scale and the Planck scale. Very tiny, very big, both of them very high energies because it, the smaller you go in quantum mechanics, the bigger the energy gets. Same, but in the cosmic scale, the bigger you get, the more energy you involve. Okay, mm -hmm. so you have the great scales, the grand. Then you have the middle scale, the mesoscale. That's the scale of us. And approximately the size of atoms, you scale up a few orders of magnitude, you know, what's 10 orders of magnitude among friends. That gives us us, you know, six foot tall. And then you go down a little farther and then you get the size of an electron. And that's basically the size of the hidden dimension. An electron is roughly uh, a thousand, one thousand times smaller than uh, a, an atom, a hydrogen atom. That's wrapped around another magic number in physics, by the way, that drove one great physicist insane. He had a nervous breakdown over it. It's the number 137. It falls out of quantum mechanics. Quantum mm -hmm. mechanics and electromagnetism, when you combine those two, you get this number falls out 137. And this guy became so obsessed with this number, he actually started losing his marbles. And he, his name was Wolfgang Pauli. And he was a really smart guy, but he was really hard to get along with. I mean, the joke about Wolfgang Pauli is that he ends up in heaven 
And St. Peter at the pearly gates says to him, uh, hey, here, Dr. Polly, uh, God wants to speak to you. He says he can answer your fundamental questions here, your first half hour in heaven. And Polly, of course, loves this. So he goes and sits down with God in the office, the big office. And Polly says, well, how does the universe work? And God says, oh, it's actually very simple. Goes to the uh, whiteboard blackboard starts drawing diagrams and equations and stuff and the joke goes that polly begins shaking his head violently no no that's wrong that's wrong <laughs> <laughs> this is polly so polly he gets so obsessed with the number 137 from quantum mechanics He'd gone through a divorce. He was drinking a lot. He just started losing his marbles. So he went and saw Carl Jung, the great psychiatrist guy. Carl Jung had been a student of Sigmund Freud and had learned how to do psychiatry. And then him and Freud got in a big fight. So he moved to Switzerland, where he was nice and safe during World War II. And so Einstein's first wife and kid ended up growing up as in Switzerland because Switzerland didn't get involved in World War II. They just did the banking for everybody. They banked the war. <laughs> they made a lot of money. So he goes to, to visit Young, and Young says in his diary, yes, this great physicist named Wolfgang Pauli, who won the Nobel Prize, comes and sits in my office and starts talking with me. And after five minutes of talking to me, I think, oh, my God, what a loony. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so that's Wolfgang Pauli, mm -hmm. 137. So that's one of the big magic numbers of physics is 137. Now I've added a new number, 42. 42. I'll explain later the importance of this number and where you get this number. But Pauli got interested in Kaluza-Klein theory. He added a sixth dimension, and that's really what got string theory going. He took the theory of Kaluza-Klein, which gives you electromagnetism and gravity linked together, and the math is perfect. It's just, it's just miraculous. You just do one thing. You add a skate wheel on the side of your car, and suddenly you turn it into a race car. And you ask, why does this fifth wheel do that? Why do we need this fifth wheel? Why does this do this? And nobody knows. And, you know, that you, people ask, what is the fifth dimension? Mm -hmm. And you say, gosh, I'll add 10 hidden dimensions and then tell you. <laughs> yeah, you know. If you want to explain a penguin, what you do is you get a whole herd of penguins. And then you say... Mm -hmm. Which penguin are you actually interested in? So we have this theory now. It says gravity can be understood as pointing vector. And you can see that really easy by a very simple experiment you can do on the space station where everything's weightless. Mm -hmm. Okay, you have two ball bearings. You put them in a box. You heat the ball bearings with an acetylene torch so they're both white hot. You put them in this box. They'll actually repel each other due to mutual radiation pressure, which runs on the pointing vector. That pushes the two ball bearings apart with a one over R squared force. Very easy to understand. Now, 
throw away the ball bearings. Let them cool off, throw them away. Then what you do is you take two balls of carbon, two, two balls of charcoal. You cool them in liquid nitrogen. And at the same time, you're heating the box with your acetylene torch out there in space. Not a really good idea, by the way. Runs, you know, space station with acetylene torch inside. But anyway, you heat the box with a acetylene torch so it's white hot. White hot steel. Then you put the two carbon balls in there. They're floating. They attract each other with a one over R squared force, just like gravity. And they're doing that because radiation pressure is pressing in on all sides, except there's slightly less pressure on the side facing the other carbon sphere because it shadows it. So that gives you a slightly weaker radiation pressure on one side than the other, and the two balls move together. And the closer they get together, the more they shadow each other. So the force goes as one over R squared, just like gravity. And that's the Gadonkin experiment, thought experiment. You can demonstrate pointing vector can give you an effect that looks like gravity. Okay, that's the first postulate. The second postulate is in order to get the math of electromagnetism and gravity as two forces. You start with one force, you add a fifth dimension, you get two forces. You get gravity. Start with just four dimensions, you get gravity. You add a fifth dimension, the skating wheel that you apply on the side of your car door. It gives you electromagnetism plus gravity. They're linked together. Everything works. The math works beautifully. It's a miracle. Now, you don't need quantum mechanics to do that, by the way. Mm -hmm. The quantum mechanics that helps you in, in my theory because that's where you start out. The hidden dimension starts out at the size of the Planck scale and then blossoms. It pops out like popcorn. Pop. It suddenly it's there. So you start with the Planck scale. That's quantum mechanics. Now you can take the formula you get for the expansion of the hidden dimension from the Planck scale. You can take that formula, and it's correlated with the separation of the proton and the electron. You say the, the, the new mesoscale, which is the size of your thing from the Planck scale, the size of the hidden dimension, is entirely determined by the charges and masses of the proton and the electron. So you take a compromise mass. You multiply the electron mass times the proton mass, take the square root. That gives you a common mass. And you sort of say, okay, when this thing expands, the charges shrink from being the Planck scale, but this mass stays the same because the product of the masses stays the same. Okay, so you get the mesoscale from that formula. So you say this new scale depends only on things associated with hydrogen. The new scale allows hydrogen to exist. And you take the logarithm of that expansion from the Planck scale, and that gives you then the mass ratio of the proton and the electron, or the square root of it, 42. Okay, you can take that formula because the Planck scale uses big G, Newton's gravitation constant. You can take that formula, turn it inside out, and make it a formula for big G. 
the big number. When you do that, you get a formula for big G that gives you the number of G, which they measure in the lab, mm -hmm. to within one part per thousand. No one else can do that. I went to a big conference full of string theorists and presented this. They paid me the ultimate compliment. They got mad at me. Where are your strings? I don't need any. I just use one fifth dimension. The rest of these 10 dimensions, I don't need them. And I get big G, which they can't get. No one else has got. I'm sorry. Let me do a little Texas bragging here. I got big G by the grace of God, and nobody else has it. And so they paid me the ultimate comment. Instead of rushing up and shaking my hand, they got mad at me. This one guy comes up to me. This was just like a fight in the high school parking lot of my high school I went to when I was in. You look for the crowd in the high school parking lot after school, high school's let out. You know, there's a fight. There's two guys in there either circling each other or punching each other. And this guy comes up to me and a bunch of people gather around us. And he says, your formula, you've hidden G in one side of your formula and made it appear in the other. You know, this is what Sakharov and Putoff did. And they were very clear about it. They were just trying to show the whole concept worked as a circle. You know, it was mm -hmm. circular reasoning, but hey, the universe loves circles. It loves pi. So this guy says, you've hidden G in one side of this equation and made it appear in the other. You know, in other words, I'm a shyster. He's calling me a shyster. I said, we're standing in front of a bulletin board where I have the formulas all written out. I pointed at it. I said, there it is. There's the formula. Find me G on this side of the formula so it will pop out on this side. And He's looking really angry at me. And then his angry expression slowly fades. And there's about 30 people standing around listening to this, watching this scientific brawl. And then he just walks away. <laughs> oh, and then I had all this stuff up on a big poster board. Mm -hmm. And I'm presenting it and showing it to everybody. And this other graybeard comes up to me. And he walks right past me. He just ignores me. He goes up to the board, looking very carefully at all the stuff I've done. Because not only does it give me big G, it gives me the mass of the proton in terms of the Planck mass. It says, okay, the Planck mass appears. And you start with the Planck mass, and then it shrinks and forms the proton. And it has to do with quantum mechanics. The center of that formula, by the way, is Planck's constant, H. So he's looking at all this stuff. And he looks like an unhappy camper. He is not a happy camper. And I said to him, and I had a really gorgeous girlfriend with me. She was great because we couldn't have a real bare knuckles brawl, really, with her standing there because people were spending too much time looking at her. So, hey, there are benefits to being a hotshot physicist. So anyway, so... He's 
looking at all this stuff. And I said, sir, can I help walk you through this or explain it? He turns around and just glares at me. He says, no, I can read it for myself. <laughs> well, fuck you. <laughs> I said mentally and just turn around and talk to somebody else. And, you know, that guy, the, oh boy, talk about a corn cob stuck up his ass. He just, he was an unhappy character and then just stomped away because I accomplished something all the string theory people have not been able to accomplish. I actually explained part of the world that we can see as opposed to a bunch of stuff that's just pure math. And I, I understand groupthink. I'm a physicist myself. I know there are fashions in physics, just like in rock music. And people all do this one thing. One year it's reggae, and next year it's punk rock, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I understand that. And human beings are very social. They like to be in a group, you know, when they do things. They like to sit around and discuss things and where they all kind of basically agree on something. And string theory became it. And there may have been a certain amount of the government saying, we don't want people looking at just what they call the Einstein problem, unifying the two long-range forces of nature, mm -hmm. which is, of course, what gives you spaceships and UFOs and stuff like this, warp drive. There are people in the government who probably wanted to discourage that line of inquiry. What's really fascinating is a guy named Witt, spelled W-I-T-T, -T, just a genius. Everyone acknowledges this guy is just a genius. His father was actually working on anti-gravity for the government, as it turns mm -hmm. out, back in the days when it was okay to call it anti-gravity. Nowadays, people ask, Brandenburg, are you working on anti-gravity? And I said, I'm not anti-gravity. I just wanted to show a little flexibility. <laughs> so we call it gravity modification, you know. <laughs> Was it Wit or Witten? Oh, uh, I think actually, you know what? I think it's Witten. Excuse me. Excuse okay. me. I think it's Witten. I can't remember his first name. Everybody acknowledges he's the smartest human being alive on this planet. He probably is. But he is the father and grandfather and great-grandfather now of string theory. And along with Brian Green, he is Mr. String Theory. And his father, though, worked on gravity modification for the military. The father was Lewis or Louis Witten? I think so. I think the so. And the son's Ed Louis. Yeah. Ed, thank, thank you. I have Google Kung Fu, and you don't. Uh, there you go. <laughs> You're Googling all of this. Great. So Witten did not show up to my poster session. And I've given oral talks on this, too. And the reaction was the same. I was like, who the hell? You know, you're, you're doing numerology, Brandenburg. You're just coming up with numbers. That's how they dismiss it. They say, you can't be right. You can't be right. You discovered some weird coincidences in physics. No, that's And physics, by the way, real physics is about explaining the numbers we measure in nature. And 
occasionally predicting them. That's the real crown is predicting something that hasn't been seen before, and then they see it. And that's what gets you a Nobel Prize. Now, I predicted a particle that has 42 times more mass than the electron. And there was a team that was supposedly, some people reported something similar to that, that had been seen in an experiment. Then you never heard anything more about it. And by the way, when DARPA gave me money to do the gem theory and develop it, because when you develop the gem theory further, it says you can modify gravity fields with electromagnetism, pointing vector. Here's how you do it. Here's the equation. As it turns out, you get a flying craft that looks like a dome with three bumps on the bottom. The three bumps are coils which carry three phases of Tesla's rotating three-phase power. You create a rotating electromagnetic field, a pointing vortex, I call it, because it sounds more sexy. And so it's a pointing vortex, and you can create it under this dome, and this enables the dome to fly in the gravity field. If you enjoyed this video, please click on like, subscribe, and the notification button so that you're alerted anytime I post something new.